Welcome to WChat, where we chat about how to improve sexual and reproductive health communication with women. Thank you for joining us for episode one, getting to know the co-founders, Dr. Nicole Lowe, which is me, and Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. Say hi, Stephanie. Hi, everybody. This will be one of the few episodes where it is just us talking. We felt that it was important for you to get to know us and understand our perspective before we get into content-specific issues and interview other professionals and women. If you want to read a brief introduction about us, please check out our bios at www.womencenteredhealth.com slash about. Otherwise, keep listening. So let's jump right in and meet Nicole Lowe. Okay, Nicole, so let's start by talking about your professional background. My educational background started out at Winona State University, where I got my bachelor's in nursing, and that is in Minnesota. And then I got my master's from the University of Iowa, as well as my PhD in nursing from the University of Iowa. Uh, Within that, I do have some clinical experience. Uh, I have a few years of OB nursing work, and then I also have some experience with pediatric clinical nursing, as well as some long-term care and rehabilitation. So my clinical experience really ranges throughout the lifespan. And then as far as research, uh, which really got started when I was getting my PhD, my dissertation and really my focus all through school was women's sexual and reproductive health, primarily women, uh, college-age women, 18 to 24. My dissertation was Perspectives of Versus responsible sexual behavior. So this included looking at data about how college women define responsible sexual behavior, how rural women define and manage responsible sexual behavior. And this is what is responsible according to women. I do did not have some predetermined uh, definition of that. Also with working with my advisor, I have some research experience with autism and sexual and reproductive health, specifically what their knowledge levels are, as well as um, parents' perceived needs of their kids with autism. And I believe that that is a summary of all my clinical education and my research experience. Okay, so... I like to ask people this question because it might be different for everybody, but you are a nurse, um, so this might be obvious, but why did you get a PhD in nursing? Yes, that's a really interesting question for me because to be quite honest, when I first got, uh, when I first decided I was going to become a nurse, I genuinely had no idea you could even get a PhD in your nursing, in nursing. But what I found was this is this is naive teenage Nicole thinking here. Um, but when I was in high school, I never understood why women would get pregnant in high school or why wouldn't you go to college and leave, you know, this small community and pursue these other things. And so I always was really interested in sexual health and, you know, why would you do this? And again, naive thinking. So I end up going to school, getting my nursing degree. And even during then, I was always really interested in sexual and reproductive health research. And then I ended up doing an honors project. Um, This was for a clinical I was working at, kind of unrelated, but it was about um, newborn pain intervention. But anyways, I was the only nerd student who did an honors project. And my advisor at the time said, well, Nicole, you know, you already did this project. You actually have a really good start on getting your PhD. And... 
you know, again, like naive now, like 20 something, Nicole's like, well, she's got a really cool office and owns a vineyard. That sounds like a sweet gig. And I'm totally serious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so interesting. But then I was like, no, no I'm not going to get my PhD. I got to get out. And what I found in all of my nursing jobs is I kept looking. I kept having systems level issues. Like I kept being like, why are we doing it this way? Why is the clinic running this way? And finally, someone pointed out to me that perhaps... Floor nursing's not really my thing, and it's not. I love my patients, but floor nursing's not for me because I really just kept questioning the system. Why, 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 why? And it really became clear when I met my advisor, and she's like, it's because of, because of how you think is really more aligned with having a PhD. And so I blindly uh, kind of joined a PhD nursing program in uh, hindsight 2020. I had no idea that the University of Iowa was a research intensive university. The reason I actually went there is because my husband got into dental school there and I was like, well, they have a PhD program. Let's do this. So through a lot of research and working with an amazing advisor, I really, it felt abundantly clear to me. And even though it was, you know, an obviously difficult program, I always felt like this is what I was meant to do. I was meant to get my PhD, use my perspective to try and help other women like me, like where I'm from, have better sexual and reproductive health. So I just, I always identified, I guess, kind of as the nerd nurse I really enjoyed research. I liked reading it. I went to my first conference and was like totally bitten by the bug, the research bug. I found it really interesting, um, I guess. And it's just kind of been history ever since now trying to infuse the PhD with nursing, with my um, personal background and how I can be most effective to help other women. Awesome. So you probably answered some of the next question in there, but um, I'll go ahead and ask if you have anything else to add. So, you know, our listeners being physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, any type of healthcare provider, what would you like them to know about what informs your perspective in your research or in your um, even your clinical background? Yeah, so uh, that's a really great question. When, like I said, I was the naive teenager from a small town. So I actually grew up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, I will try not to drop too many O's and sometimes it might come out. I can't help it. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I'm, I grew up on a dairy farm. And so I grew up from a pretty conservative background, uh, all of, you know, Catholic, conservative. My community is very conservative and it's a small rural community. And so that, I think, is probably the biggest thing that informs my perspective as I'm a very big cheerleader for rural women, uh, mostly because sexual and reproductive health wasn't something. It's not something my mom talked to me about. It's not something her mom talked to her about. And so I always feel that the communication piece with reproductive health is so important. And so I find that it's kind of my own personal duty to give back to women who maybe don't have that piece because of the way that kind of the rural context situates sexual and reproductive health. Other things that inform my perspective throughout the, my life, things have really changed a lot. My dad committed suicide uh, seven years ago now, and that has definitely kind of changed personal philosophies for me. And with that is I do things that make me happy. I make a very conscious effort to do what makes me happy. And woman-centered health is really 
really about what makes me happy um, and helps me give back in a way that I I want to give back. So definitely my dad passing away has really informed my personal life and my perspective as far as really helping and doing what makes me happy. And then I'd probably say a couple other things. One is my husband's now in the military and I never saw that for myself as, you know, being young that I'd ever be a military spouse. So that has definitely given me some new insight as far as how the government works, how does, you know, government insurance work, and also just kind of this culture of military life, um, being, you know, away from my family and having to travel long distances. And, you know, there's really a different set of sacrifices that come along with being a, a military family. So I would say that. And then probably the last thing, when I think about what informs my practice in an, in an interesting way. So like I said, I grew up on a dairy farm and we had insurance, but not very good insurance. And so it was something that literally, unless you are dying, about to lose a limb or possibly going blind, you would go to the doctor. I mean, seriously, like we just did not go to the doctor unless you were one of those things. Um, so to me... And I don't mean to get political. I'm just saying based on my perspective, health insurance is a privilege. And so I have a hard time. And even in my practice, seeing people who I felt maybe abused insurance or like overused it or, you know, maybe didn't call a triage nurse or could have found ways to save healthcare dollars because of their insurance. That's a whole nother situation. And again, they definitely to talk about in future episodes. Yes. And and I don't mean to get very political with that. It's just because of my perspective, health insurance for me was a privilege. And so, and I, and I never, I never treated patients, you know, differently, but yes, uh, that those all inform my perspective. (laughs) Okay, great. So earlier you talked about kind of uh, why you chose a PhD in nursing and someone that was really cool to you having an office in a vineyard, (laughs) which sounds like a really good life goal, actually. Um, Yes. But I don't think you own a vineyard yet. But (laughs) can you tell me or tell our listeners rather what your goals are for sort of from here for the rest of your career and your life. I get asked this all the time, like, oh, now that you graduated with your PhD, what are you going to do? And honestly, I just, I have this feeling like I want to do everything. Like, I want to have this business and help women and help providers. And and sometimes I want to get into politics and help policy. And because, again, that's a whole nother story, but I really feel like they could use some healthcare expertise uh, when it comes to legislation. So I think to have like one distinct goal is hard. Uh, If you really want to get to know my personal, personal life, I'll give you a little insight here. So my personal life goals are to have a cabin on the lake because that just sounds fantastic. My other, I guess this is a career goal, is I really want to publish my research in Cosmopolitan magazine. Uh, I have been laughed at by rooms of academics when I tell them that, uh, to which I always rebuttal that that's my target demographic for my research. And if I want, if I really want to make a change, that's really where I need to publish. And after I say that, then they're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. My other life goal was to get my PhD in nursing, which I met. And then the last one, this one's probably the funniest one, 
but it was very serious to me, is I was a hardcore 90s baby, and owning a signed Spice Girls poster was a life goal to which my husband helped me achieve my life goal once I graduated. That was his gift. I now have a autographed Spice Girls picture that hangs on my wall, and I look at it every time in my office, and it totally... Yes, yes. It totally inspires me to have girl power and make tremendous change in the world. (laughs) Awesome. So on a less serious note, because we've been so serious so far, (laughs) what do you do when you aren't thinking about women-centered health? (laughs) Yes. So when I'm not thinking about women-centered health, my uh, husband and I have a pop-up camper and we, I also have a daughter and two pit bulls. And we like to go adventuring. Our goal is to see every national park. So every year we do a, a big two-week trip and we go um, camping and we just go crazy adventuring. So we go camping. I love spending time with my family up in Wisconsin. Um, also, my family just started a nonprofit in honor of my dad. So we've been really busy trying to raise money and we're organizing a 5K for our community coming up here, our first one in October. So... Yeah, we stay busy outside of women-centered health, but certainly this women-centered health is my baby. So I spend a lot of time thinking about this, even when I'm camping, even when I'm in Wisconsin, I'm always texting Stephanie ideas and thoughts and yeah, things we need to do. So yeah, I'd say a lot of it overlaps together. Oh, for sure. It just comes to you, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a thinker. It's the PhD, I guess. I just yes. a lot. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to turn the tables and get to know Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. All right. So we're just going to kind of do the same set of questions with Dr. Edmonds. So why don't you get us started and tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah. So let's see. I started, let's see, I started going to Truman State University, which is a small public school in northern Missouri. And it was too uh, too much of a small town for me. So I transferred to the University of Missouri in St. Louis. And that's where I graduated with my bachelor's in nursing. After that, I worked on an orthopedic floor, believe it or not, for about a Oh, as a nurse for about a year, I had worked there previously as a student nurse. And I really, you know, it's the same thing that you said, did not like floor nursing. Um, (laughs) It was good learning for sure. You really appreciate how hard nurses work on on the hospital floor. But you know, kind of the same thing that you said, um, when I was getting my bachelor's degree, I was like one of the odd nerdy nurses. I love the research and nursing course. I love the public health course. I love the ethics courses um, that we had to take, whereas everybody else kind of like blew those off. I really like them. And one of my professors um, who taught public health, actually, um, I talked to her, I was like, I really like this class. I didn't even know nurses could do this kind of stuff. What do I need to do? And she said, Oh, get get your master's degree in public health. And that sounded really exciting to me. So kind of right after I graduated, and worked a little bit, I started looking into master's in public health court cl- or universities that had them. And I was also at the time very interested in going to the Peace Corps. So if you can believe that, um, I'm kind of a little bit of a prima donna. So that's why it's surprising. Um, Yes. (laughs) I don't like camping, unlike Nicole. Um, 
So I there's several programs in the country that have a uh, where you can get an MPH and then do your Peace Corps, and that sort of counts as your thesis. So I picked Tulane um, University to get my master's degree in public health, and partly because I thought New Orleans was amazing. Little did I know that I would move there three weeks before Hurricane Katrina, and I had to evacuate and by that, I just mean I went home to St. Louis. <laughs> it sounds like dramatic, but it was not for me, obviously. I had to not go to school that semester, but I went back in January, which I actually love to talk about New Orleans. So maybe we would bring that up in the future. <laughs> but that was definitely an eye-opening, almost like Peace Corps experience for a short time. And so um, I went back in January and then attended there for a year and a half and graduated. I ended up not doing the Peace Corps, probably because I figured out it wasn't for me, but also because I met my husband and just kind of wanted to start a life and not devote two years away. And so I actually worked for a while in Planned Parenthood. My master's degree was in maternal and child health and also health education. So I started to really appreciate also the health communication aspect. So really understanding that talking to patients, they might not understand everything that you're saying and how to speak to them or educate them in a more um, thoughtful way and noticing that that was not getting done a lot in the in the community. I worked so I worked at Planned Parenthood for a while. Love that. Um it was right when the HPV vaccine came out, so started a program to sort of implement that in the clinics there. And then I switched over to St. Louis University and just in their women's health department, you know, doing outpatient sort of OB and GYN. And I did that for 3 years and then my husband moved us to Iowa. I had always wanted to work in research, never had. University of Iowa is a research-intensive university, so I was really excited. I landed a job in internal medicine, working on a um, large R01 study, which is just like a you know well-funded study, I'll put it that way. And the premises was like communicating with patients, how to communicate their bone density test results to them. Um, so I actually was a study coordinator on that for over five years, I think almost seven. But during that time, my mentor, who's a physician, really pushed me into research, um, really encouraged it. And he suggested I get my PhD so I could really do real research as on my own. And so I was able to start at the University of Iowa, which is where Nicole and I met, in the PhD in nursing program. And then um, more recently, once I was almost graduating and doing my dissertation. I started a fellowship at the VA in Iowa City doing actually quality improvement and um, specifically in women's health. Let's see. Oh, I, oh, I'll talk a little bit about my research then. So like I said, I was doing research in bone density test results, um, how to communicate those, which tied in nicely with the communication part. Also, we talk to patients about risk of fracture, so a lot of in-risk communication, and then just health education about osteoporosis. 
Um, and then I really wanted to move back to sort of that reproductive health aspect, like in that I focused on when I worked at Planned Parenthood. So unintended pregnancies, kind of like what you said, Nicole, like, why do people get pregnant when they're in high school? You know, I had always thought about that, or why don't people plan this? Or how does this happen on accident? Just, you know, from my perspective, you know, that never happening to me, I didn't really understand it. And then also really preconception health. So making um, sort of doing healthy behaviors before you get pregnant, which really does require planning the pregnancies. So I got really interested in this concept called reproductive life planning, um, which is for those who don't know, is something that the CDC recommends that providers talk to their patients about. And basically, it's kind of like what's your plan for having children or not having children. And it's something that family planning clinics are supposed to do with all their patients. So I really wanted to see how providers are doing that. So the the providers working in Title 10 funded clinics, how they were using reproductive life planning with their patients. So that was my dissertation. And now I'm still working at the VA. And for all of you, uh, we will most likely have a whole episode dedicated to Stephanie's research with reproductive life planning. It she really had amazing results, and she I was fortunate enough for her to share them with me and help read some of her yeah. dissertation. Uh, so we will definitely be talking about that in the future. So you had mentioned kind of uh, your progression to getting your PhD in nursing, but why a PhD in nursing and maybe not public health? Yeah, that's a really good question. I get asked that a lot, actually, because I could have sort of gone either way since I had a master's degree in public health and a bachelor's in nursing. And really, it comes down to sort of two things is how I made my decision. Uh, Because University of Iowa also has a great school, um, College of Public Health. So I thought being away from nursing for a little bit you know, getting a degree in public health was very different than my degree in nursing. And I really wanted to bring it, bring myself back to nursing because it was that sort of patient perspective, like really one-on-one with patients, whereas an understanding patients, um, like sort of individually, whereas public health, you're kind of talking like statistics and big picture, you lose that nursing part of it in public health. So I wanted to bring that sort of back into my knowledge, but also just like career-wise, nursing offered a little bit more flexibility. Once you're a nurse, you're sort of always a nurse. Um, (laughs) It doesn't matter what other degrees you get. And so, but then also you can teach in both. So like you can be a nurse and teach in public health, But you can't just have a degree in public health and teach in nursing. So it was really just that flexibility of if I got a PhD in nursing, I could be a professor in nursing, I could be a professor in public health, or I could be a professor in whatever else. Whereas if I got my PhD in public health, I probably couldn't go back to nursing, if that makes sense at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the holistic care is really important to you. Uh, So kind of building on that, what would you like our listeners to know about you that informs your perspective or maybe why you're so interested in holistic care? Yeah, so some of the stuff that you said, even though we have a little bit of a different background growing up, I think some of it's very similar. So I grew up in like, you know, suburbia, like legitimate suburbia. The houses all look the same. You know, they were two feet apart from each other. (laughs) Most of the kids in my high school had cars. Like it was 
it, we are comfortable. But at the same time, while we might have maybe been more educated than like rural area people, as you know, as far as education goes, degrees or whatever, my my parents really did not talk to me about sexual and reproductive health at all. Um, we didn't really get it in schools, even though they were, you know, quote unquote, good schools that isn't part of being a good school by any means. And we still had teen pregnancy. So I think that was partly, you know, kind of like really curious, like, it's kind of just it's again, that same perspective, like you sweep it under the rug, you don't talk about that stuff. Um, even with your closest family members. And so I kind of grew up like maybe a little bit shame, shameful about it. Yes. Um, so when I got older, I started questioning that like, why are like everybody has, you know, or half the people have these parts and half these people have these parts. And, you know, why are we so shame? And everybody's having sex. <laughs> um, so why are we so like, sort of shameful about talking about it. And then when I started working in this field, I noticed like, you know, that was sort of impacting everybody on this global level, like this not talking about it stuff, you know, and it, it makes it hard to talk to your healthcare provider about it then because you're so used to not talking about it. At the same time, like as a healthcare provider, you're like, okay, I've heard everything that I could possibly hear. So just tell me <laughs> because you're not going to shock me and I'm not going to, you know, necessarily judge you or <laughs> like other people in your life might. So I think that's the big thing is like just that open, honest communication so we can figure out sort of how to answer your questions or get to what is bothering you or or whatever. Also, you know, just the holistic part of it. I think, you know, if we just kind of going back like to my master's in public health, like learning about unintended pregnancies and why they're, you know, they're almost half of all pregnancies are quote unquote unintended. And when you start really picking that apart, what that means for women, what is unintended pregnancy? Why do women have unintended pregnancies? You really start to see this like whole woman perspective. Like, and you have to think about that. Like not all women want to plan for pregnancies. Not all women can plan for pregnancies. Some women, if they maybe don't have money, it would be sort of frowned upon to plan for pregnancy. And so really like seeing like, how does your income and your education and your lifestyle and your family, like that all goes into pregnancies um, and childbirth. And so I think, you know, you really have to look at that whole woman to really get a, a understanding of her perspective um, before you sort of start judging like, oh, you didn't plan your pregnancy. That's awful. Because I think that's sort of how some people think about things in our society. So I think, you know, those are the two big things for me. I mean, just even being in suburbia growing up, like, you know, everybody sort of like is supposed to go to college. And, you know, so if you didn't sort of follow this trajectory, this sort of quote unquote normal you know, trajectory for our um, life, like, you know, you were kind of judge, judged a bit. So, and then you, you know, also at the same time, like people that are outside of that area, you don't even ever see people like that. So I think it's like really, you know, opening your mind and seeing people as like whole human beings and not just where they are right now, but that whole background to their entire life. And do you have kind of like one specific thing that made you, I don't know how to word this, like 
want to have that holistic perspective or is there some kind of like trigger moment where you're like we need to look at all of this um or did you say kind of a culmination yeah i think it was kind of over time you know leading up to that you know i don't really know i think it was just kind of over time you start to really realize this okay so you also talked about kind of over time that, you know, as you had one experience, you made the, you know, you made getting your master's a goal, then you made getting your research goal. So what are your current career life goals? Yeah. So that's a good question because I've always been extremely goal oriented my entire life. And this is sort of the first time in my life where I'm sort of like, oh my gosh, I don't have this really clear cut goal. (laughs) Um, And it's sort of freaking me out and it's freaking my husband out of it because he also knows me as this extremely goal oriented person. So it was sort of like, you know, back when I was getting my bachelor's, again, I was like the nerdy nursing student. And I was like, I want to be this professor when I grow up. Like, I don't know why. I just thought that was like, that's what I want to do. I want to teach nurses. And I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to teach them, but I wanted to do that. <laughs> and so I had always like kind of, that's part of the reason I wanted to get my PhD. I I liked research, but also I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to do tenure and I wanted that office, just like you were saying, like, and teach nurses. And as I was through the program, I sort of had this like crisis like moment of seeing what that actually means, what <laughs> yes. a professor's life is like. Um, it looked, you know, like when you're a floor nurse and you're like so stressed to the max every day, like having an office and like reading and stuff like that, like sounds so relaxing. I don't know. But then when you actually see what professors deal with for like, and how it's like totally ingrained in every aspect of their life. And there's so much pressure on getting, you know, research grants, which are highly competitive. And then you have teaching students on top of that. And then just like other service things that you have to do. Um, It just didn't necessarily seem like a life that I wanted to live. And, you know, Nicole and I both sort of had this moment too, where it's like, you do all this research and it never goes anywhere. So you might get seven years to get somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So you publish this paper, which first of all, takes a long time to publish a paper. And that's like once you have data and once it's analyzed, so then it takes forever to get published, like a year or two years um, after you actually have the data analyzed. And then, you know, maybe other researchers read it. But I don't really I mean, that's great that other researchers read it. But, you know, as a nurse, I'm trying to help other nurses or other healthcare providers provide care to patients. And that's really, I think, probably why we both got into PhD in nursing is so we can impact the most people. And by people, we mean patients. And, you know, and I think that's kind of going back to like what you said about writing for Cosmo. It's like, how can we actually talk to women or get through to women and help them through our research? Because that's really our goal It's not just research for research sake. So we talked about this, like, you know, both being sort of interested in women's health, but also the communication part. How can we just like, just skip right ahead 
and get this research that might be helpful to providers that don't have time to read it and then have them use that information to help their patients. And I think that this is sort of like maybe a creative way of doing that. So, you know, this is definitely one of my life goals um, now. And the rest, I'm not really sure about yet. Um, owning a vineyard actually sounds pretty funny. I didn't think about that. So <laughs> Maybe we can have story. that together too. <laughs> yes, I think that sounds like a good life goal. <laughs> but, you know, definitely for my career, I actually, so I, like I said, I work for the VA now. It was kind of a, a surprise to me. My One of my colleagues recommended the VA and I kind of was like, what? That's like a bunch of old men. <laughs> no offense to old men, but I just you know, work with younger women, (laughs) usually. Um, And, you know, finding out that a lot of women now are veterans and coming back from being deployed and having a lot of reproductive and sexual health care problems and issues. And I kind of love it now. So I wouldn't mind kind of sticking around that population in my, in my career either. Awesome. So, you, you I, well, and, and because you can't see us, because obviously we're on a podcast, what you didn't see was me vigorously shaking my head, nodding. <laughs> yes, in agreement when Stephanie was talking about um, how difficult it is to get research quickly into practice, and that really we see women centered health as kind of being this bridge or this vehicle to, like she said, kind of skip skip those years and get it right to the people that need it. Because as nurses, our goal is really to respond to the needs of our community and our community is providers and patients. And so that's that's how we see this as being that vehicle. But anyways, on a less serious note, obviously you're busy with the VA and I keep you busy with women-centered health. <laughs> uh, what do you do when you aren't thinking about or working on the women-centered health material? Oh, man, not a whole lot. (laughs) Both of those keep me pretty busy with thinking, even just thinking in general, but also busy at different places at different times. But uh, let's see. So, you know, I have a husband and also I have two dogs and I have a son instead of a daughter. And I'll probably be maybe mentioning here, but I'm also pregnant and due in November. And we're also uh, building a house. And so just all the things that go into building a house, like picking out light fixtures and the wall color and all the exciting things like that has actually been keeping us pretty busy. And then just we go to St. Louis a lot since that's where my family's from, or they come here to Iowa. And, you know, just kind of hanging out really is is kind of all I have time for at this point. (laughs) Well, great. I think that um, that's probably a good summary of Stephanie and I. And if there are any other questions, please feel free to head over to our webpage and contact us. We would love to address any other questions we had. And we do have one last thing we would like to talk about before we end up this segment. Stephanie, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so I think the part that we haven't really gotten to or just brushed over very briefly is we thought it would be important to discuss in this episode how Women-Centered Health, or WCH, we'll call for short, came to be. And we kind of touched on this briefly, but Nicole, do you want to kind of start how start off talking about how this um, idea evolved? Yes, yeah, so sort of the nitty-gritty. So this kind of... Um 
if you haven't noticed, sometimes things in my life just really happen by random and then end up working out really well. So interestingly, so like I said, my husband's in the military and we kind of are in this weird time period where he just has a little bit left to his commitment and then we're going to be moving. I then reached out to career services, had this, you know, where they could help you figure out what you're going to do with your life. And so I reached out to them and they said, well, you know, being a PhD, you know, writing is really important to your career. And so they they suggested that maybe I start writing or doing a blog and, you know, blogging perhaps about my dissertation or, you know, something that's really interesting to me. So obviously that's women's sexual and reproductive health. I was like, okay, cool. You know, I've never really for, again, those of you who don't know, Stephanie kind of calls me, although I'm a millennial, I'm more of a baby boomer. Um, <laughs> she laughs because it's true. I'm not super into technology. So blogging was really not something I'd ever thought about. It's really not something I read. So I just kind of started tossing this idea around. Well, through a mutual friend, she uh, told me about this faculty where she was doing a postdoc who had essentially flipped her career where she had went from being a, a professor with great funding to now having this more kind of online presence and starting her own business. And I hope that someday we can have her on here because she really is amazing. Her name is Rebecca Decker and she started Evidence-Based Birth. And for any of you who are OB related, you need to check her out. She does this really cool thing. She translates research uh, into kind of palatable information about birth. But anyway, so I talked to her just about, you know, how did you get started on this whole blogging thing or this internet thing? What does this all mean? And through our conversation, she told me how, you know, she bounces ideas off of other people and said that if I had synergy with someone that I should really reach out to them and, you know, we could do projects together. Well, Stephanie and I have this amazing synergy and we took a lot of our courses together and we always, we failed, but we always asked to um, do our research projects together because our perspectives really do complement each other and our research is very complementary as well. And although we've, I mean, we even asked if we could do a dissertation together because we thought it would be so amazing. And we actually ended up defending on the same day and people who came to both said, wow, this would have been really great together. <laughs> so anyway, so our personalities are synergistic, uh, our interests are synergistic and like our backgrounds, you know, our perspectives just because, you know, I kind of have have that more rural country she's got that more city urban but again like our personalities like we just we just work and so I was like okay yeah I got this friend that I've got a lot of synergy with and so uh, I reached out to Stephanie and I said hey you know it, I was told that I could start blogging you know, could blog about this what do you think and she said yeah I'm totally in and then it it kind of kept it evolved from just blogging about things that were interesting to us to suddenly like, hey, you know, we can make this thing huge. And I have really big ideas. And so, it again, these ideas just kept getting bigger and bigger. And she was like, yes, 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 let's do this. And so that's kind of the nitty gritty. And, and again, we both, our education background and then with all of our experience with communication, kind of woman-centered health really was born out of that. And I'm going to let Stephanie talk more about, you know, the woman-centered health piece of it itself, how that kind of came to be. Yeah. So women-centered health. So I think where it really got going with our idea, again, we both are 
sort of research was in communication and specifically women's health and really, you know, realizing that that might be a place where providers can um, make some changes or drive the most impact. So, you know, there's a lot of research being done on the biology side of things with, you know, with sexual reproductive health, like infertility or safer birth or, you know, those kind of technologies, IUDs, contraception. And we're obviously not those types of researchers. What we do is how to educate and how to communicate with our patients more. So I kind of hit on this before, and so did Nicole, but really um, sex and reproduction is one of those sort of culturally sort of inappropriate things to maybe talk about. I think it's getting better, but the communication part of sex is something that I think we really as a society need to improve on. And then also just like, so safe sex, you know, so how people can have safe sex. And then, you know, sex being a very personal and sensitive topic. So how can providers talk about that with patients? Um, It's not just like, oh, my throat is sore, you know, kind of easy things that maybe most other providers can deal with like heart defects or that kind of thing that maybe aren't as culturally inappropriate to talk about. But it's also extremely important to have safe sex because we know what that can lead to if you don't. And then also just the childbirth side of things. Now, a lot has been in the news about the in the US how awful the maternal, sorry, maternal mortality rate is in the United States. And Kind of noticing a lot of these articles mentioning that women died or had complications after childbirth because their providers weren't necessarily taking their symptoms seriously. So communication can maybe even mean life or death in some situations. So overall, communication we think and the research shows can really affect health outcomes. So And it's something that really doesn't cost us any money. And we really find that that's going to be something that anybody can really incorporate and change in their practice. So not only, you know, to the health outcomes part, but even just making your life as a provider more enjoyable, sort of kind of why you went into being a physician or a nurse or any other health type of healthcare provider was probably to help patients. So helping you help them is really what our goal is in women-centered health. And the name women-centered health kind of comes from this whole person-centered health initiative. I think that a lot of medical organizations, nursing organizations are really striving for is, you know, taking that whole patient, whole person perspective and incorporating that into your practice. And so that's a that's kind of where the name came from. Since we are focusing on women, you know, how to communicate with women in a holistic way. Yeah. And I just want to add a couple more things to kind of building on what Stephanie said. The the kind of the other thing that's really interesting with sex is that sex in and of itself is really purely biological. Like it is something that is, is just part of being human is you eat, you 
eliminate, you have sex. And so really, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just part of it, right? And so this idea of like this safe sex, healthy sex, when when is it appropriate? When isn't it? These are all things that are social behaviors. And when it comes to social behaviors, those are all learned. You have to learn these things. And so, you know, we biologically are programmed to have sex, but we are biologically are not programmed to know what is healthy. We don't wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I'm going to use a condom because that's part of my biology. These are all things that have to be learned, which means it has to be communicated. So really, a lot of the outcomes for sexual and reproductive health are really communication and education based, which is why we find it really interesting. And like we both said, nobody talked to us about it as, you know, growing up or in the school system or as kids. Yet this is something that is biological to us that and we're not talking about it. Uh, so really, that's kind of the other part. And then we've also done some market research and interestingly talking to women. And some women have even gone on to say that they don't even feel comfortable talking to their doctors about sex and so they have concerns that go unanswered or unaddressed because they don't even feel comfortable talking to their doctors about it which you kind of comes down to geez you know if you can't talk to your girlfriends you can't talk to your you know parents and you can't talk to your doctor you know who are you talking to and especially with something that is really and I think Stephanie agrees that sexual and reproductive health is really important to our overall life, happiness, satisfaction. Like it is integral to us as a complete person and a holistic person. And to ignore, you know, that we are sexual beings really is to ignore, you know, certain parts of us as a person and really doesn't promote holistic health. And so I think that's kind of another big piece as to why communication to us is so important when it comes to sexual and reproductive health and why we, you know, have really dedicated WCH to being specifically about communication. Thank you for adding those. That's very helpful. So I think we're almost done with our first episode. So like Nicole talked about at the beginning, this is sort of a special episode that was just us talking. In the future, we will be interviewing other people on our episodes. So that might be researchers, women as patients and providers. Our plan is that we'll start out with a short story, uh, probably from a patient that we spoke to. And then about a specific issue that we'll talk about for that episode. And then we will learn about our guest and what they have to say. And then we'll conclude, sort of do a nice summary on how that can affect your practice. So lessons learned, tips maybe, and advice for you. So kicking off sort of our first episode normal episode, I'll say, um, we're go- we want to analyze bias and how that impacts communication with patients. So talking about sort of what we call implicit or um, unconscious biases that you that we all hold, that you do hold um, and identifying those and how that might impact your communication, but also how you can sort of overcome that so it doesn't. Um, So until then, thanks for listening to WChat.